0: us online as well and down in uh, Fellowship 3 downstairs. Uh, We are studying the book of Daniel. I've started that study so I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. I don't know about you guys, our family enjoys, uh, always have, enjoys playing board games. Um, Even our grandkids are getting into it and seem to enjoy beating grandpa regularly whether it's uh, Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride, Splendor, that's a fun one. Um, a new one that's coming up is, uh, it's catching on, it's called Wingspan. I haven't figured that one out, but uh, my 11-year-old got, has it down, the uh, grandson. Um, a lot of fun things. One game we do not play anymore, uh, in fact, we haven't for decades, um, is the game called Risk. It's... It's the, the game about conquering the world. Um, I don't know what it was about that game. Apparently, when, when I played that game, I turned into a bloodthirsty, uh, world-conquering tyrant. At least that's what my wife, Lisa, would always say. So we just decided if we're going to have peace in the family, we put it away, put it in storage. It hasn't seen the light of day. Uh, for a very long time. In fact, I think the last time we played was when I was uh, teaching through the book of Daniel the last time, which is like 28 years ago. Um, the game of world domination, of world conquering, of, um, of swallowing up your, your neighboring nations, it's, it's just not a board game. It is a, a game that has been played on the world scene for millennia. Nations rise, nations fall, nations get conquered, nations conquer. In the Old Testament, the the focal point of all that geopolitical intrigue was the little nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Um, And if you're there in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's the land of Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, these opening verses of the book of Daniel um, tell us that we're dealing with with real people at a real time in human history. These are real kings and real kingdoms. The lives of people who were going through kind of the normal or maybe not so normal warp and woof of life. Uh, They were being raised up in homes. They were um, marrying and having children. They were going off to work and going off to war. Uh, These were real people in real times. And I want to unpack this a little bit this morning and put this broad perspective. Um, Last week, I talked about that overarching theme of the glory of God. If you were here last week, um, we looked at that that very broad thing. The old Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this theme of the glory of God, the sum total of all that He is, is revealed. It is that, that intrinsic glory of God. But it's also something we are to ascribe to God, the glory of God. Well, we looked at one particular passage when King Solomon dedicated the temple that he'd built for the glory of God. In 2 um, Chronicles chapter 7, we read this. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and they gave praise to the Lord and they said, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Uh, This was the manifestation of the glory of God. Now, when Moses had built the, the little pre-temple the tabernacle the glory of God was there too that was the presence of God in that tent of meeting above the the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat where the cherubim were and the glory of God shone and now here in the temple that Solomon built the glory of God descends again and and this brilliance of the glory of God it filled everything and the people bowed down because that's the response to the glory of God And as long as the the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, uh, recognized the glory of God and worshipped God and His glory, they were blessed. Moses, in the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, said that if you continue to obey the Lord the God, all these blessings will come. The very presence of God would bless the people of Israel. But if they chose not to obey, if they went their own way, Deuteronomy 28 says that all these cursings will come. That was the history of the Old Testament. As long as the people obeyed and followed and worshipped God, the glory of God, His presence, His glory would reside with them. But sadly, after Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into. There was a civil war. The 12 tribes of Israel fought, and the 10 northern tribes... Uh, They kept the name Israel. They separated from the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. But not only did the ten northern tribes of Israel split off from the southern tribes, they split off from God himself. There were 19 kings that ruled the northern tribes of Israel, and not one of them followed God. The wickedness, the evil, their hearts turned. They worshipped other gods. Sin and rebellion ruled the day. And finally in 722 B.C., God raised up the Assyrians. And they came into that region and they, they conquered the, the ten northern tribes and took them off into captivity. And they were no more. Now Assyria was that growing power of the day, the vast empire of Assyria. Uh, scholars tell us that... Um, Syria was really truly the very first world empire known to mankind. To really wear that label of a world empire. They dominated for three centuries the Middle Eastern region. They were a power to be reckoned with. Except they kept running into a a little bit of trouble with that little nation, those two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, the nation of, of Judah. Uh, Because God showed favor of the 18, 19 kings that were raised up in in, uh, Judah. Half of them followed God. Hezekiah was one of those during the days of Isaiah. We studied the book of Isaiah a number of years ago here. Hezekiah was a good king. And um, Assyria had some problems there with Judah. For three centuries, though, they were the dominant world power until... At the end of the 7th century, their power began to, to wane. There'd be little uprisings here and there, little problems, and they'd have to go put out that fire and, and put out this fire. And, and after three centuries, they started to weaken, and a new force started to emerge on the world scene. So a little unknown chieftain uh, by the name of Nabopolassar, not You might name your dog that, but you wouldn't want to name your kids that, but Nabopolassar. And he was a chieftain that was arising out of a region of Babylonia, which is a kind of the southern part of the Assyrian power. Nabopolassar was a, was a really crazy guy. Um, apparently didn't come from much human stock, but he was a feisty man. He was a ruthless man and uh, he somehow began to consolidate the power of the Babylonia people to rise up against Assyria. In 626 B.C., the people of Babylonia made them their king, which didn't set well with the power of Assyria, and so they began to try to squash uh, Nabopolassar and and the Babylonian power, but then another uprising would begin over the northern part of Assyrian Empire, and they'd have to send their armies there. And for 14 years, Nabopolassar began to consolidate the power in Babylonia and began to slowly emerge. And in 612 B.C., he and a coalition of armies came up to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian power, and they besieged it, and they overpowered Nineveh. They sacked it, and the Assyrian army was routed. By the way, the little book in the Old Testament written by the prophet Nahum writes about that, the, the fall of Nineveh. Well, the Assyrian army, the remnant of it, after being defeated at Nineveh, they head north, they flee to a little place called Carchemish, and nabal had them on the run. And so Nabopolassar, this this world-changing leader now of a growing power of Babylonia uh followed them up to Carchemish and there were several more years of of, of, uh, of fighting and and uh, counter fighting but uh but, but the handwriting was on the wall so to speak we'll get to that in Daniel later but the handwriting for Assyria was on the wall and uh they knew their days were numbered so they sent a message down to Egypt to Pharaoh Necho II. They said, we need help against Nabopolassar. Would you send your armies to help us? Well, the Egyptians, they didn't want any. They'd been bothered for three centuries with uh, Assyria, so sure. Or with, uh, with Assyria, but they saw Babylon rising, so they said, sure, we will help you. So Pharaoh Necho II and the Egyptian army head north through that little strip of Judah, that Middle Eastern section, and they headed up to Carchemish. It was their doom because in 605 B.C. at the Battle of Carchemish, it's a world history major event, the Battle of Carchemish, the son of Nabopolassar, a rising star of Babylon, this young, vibrant, again ruthless, bloodthirsty young leader, battled the Egyptians and the remnant of the Assyrian army in Carchemish. And at 605, obliterated those armies of Assyria. Assyria was no more as a power. An Egyptian was severely wounded. That rising star in Babylonia was a man by the name of, get this to work, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nabopolassar had to go back to Babylon as an aged man and a sick man. And while his son Nebuchadnezzar was now storming the world and increasing the power of Babylon, Nabopolassar lay dying back home. And the kingdom and the realm and now the power of Babylon rested with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Okay, got all that? We'll have a quiz here at the end. So what's going on with Judah during this time? That little nation uh, that um, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah had come from. What's going on with Judah? Uh, Well, good and bad. I mentioned Hezekiah in the 8th century. He was a good godly king. Isaiah uh, served him and was the prophet of the Old Testament. But when Hezekiah died, His son Manasseh took charge. For 55 years Manasseh reigned from 697 to 642 B.C. And Manasseh was as evil as they came. Forgot everything that his father Hezekiah had done. Tore down the the vestiges of of the worship of Yahweh, Jehovah. Raised up false uh, idols to false gods, temples to false gods, Baal. He even instituted child sacrifice he sacrificed his own son to a false god for 55 years manasseh reigned somehow god was patient manasseh died and in 640 god raised up a little 8-year-old boy by the name of josiah the chronicle chronicle second uh, chronicles chapter 34 records this Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and he did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And that goes on in the latter part of chapter 34 and it says, Then the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. And moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, to stand with him. And so the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And it continues and says, Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel. And he made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Through his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord, God, of their fathers. Josiah was a whole lot different than Manasseh. 31 years. Now, I, I want to take you through to the, to the portion of the scriptures that the kings wrote, the writer of the kings wrote about Josiah. So take your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. Very similarly, um, we read this, Second Kings chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old. When he became king, he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adadiah and Baskoth. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or the left. Now verse 3 says, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, to the temple that Solomon had built. And he said, verse 4, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house. And so the carpenters and the builders, the masons, give it to them for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. Well, okay, so what had happened over 350 years after Solomon died? Obviously, the great glorious temple that he'd built for Jehovah God had fallen into disrepair under Manasseh. Uh, It wasn't being used. It was a complete and total disrepair. But in in the 18th year of the reign of King Josiah, 26 years old, this king said, this is not good. We need to repair. We need to rebuild that temple. And so he did. Verse 8 says, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. So not only was the temple in disrepair, the Mosaic law, the book of the law, the Old Testament covenant of Moses was, had gone missing. Manasseh had spurned it. It was stuck in some corner, somewhere in the disrepair of the temple and, and hilkiah the high priest found it and he gives it to shaphan the scribe who gives it and it says in verse 9 to the king and he brought back the word to the king and he said your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and they delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the lord and moreover shaphan the scribe told the king said hilkiah the priest has given me a book and shaphan read it in the presence of the king and when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The book of the law. This is God's heart. This is the commandments of God. It had been lost. The people hadn't followed the book of the law for decades. And Shaphan reads it to the king, and the king is, is just utterly undone. He tears his clothes in repentance. The king commanded, verse 12, Elkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbar, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Esaiah, the king's servant. And he said, Go, inquire the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so they read the book of the law and the Kings goes on and explains how this good godly King Josiah began to reinstitute the things that were written in the book of the law and he made the people follow it and they, they started doing the Passover again and, and all the, the rituals and the sacrificial system in the book of the law. And there was this seemingly revival going on. For 31 years, Josiah reigned and he instituted this, these reforms and, and this revival. But as I was reading that, I didn't emphasize it but I don't know if you caught it it said there in Chronicles Josiah removed all the abominations of the land and he made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord God he made them do it I mean he was king they found the book of the law this is what it says All right, people this is what we're going to do I'm king you better follow me and he made the people do it in other words did the heart of the people go along with their actions? Well, we'll find out they didn't. They gave lip service because the king was telling them to do that. His heart was right. His heart and soul was right before the Lord. This is what he really, really wanted. He was a good, godly king, but he couldn't make the people's heart be warmed towards God and give Him glory. It was mere lip service. And then tragedy struck in 609 B.C. The Battle of Carchemish was in 605. The Pharaoh Necho II and the Egyptians were now moving up to meet the Assyrian remnant army up in Carchemish, and they had to pass through Judah. Um, Josiah, for some strange reason, decided to try to interfere with the Egyptians God told him don't do it don't do it I'm in charge just don't mess with it and that kind of like the one mistake that Josiah made he got in the way and he tried to stop Pharaoh Necho and the Egyptians from going up to Carchemish and join the Assyrians to fight the Babylonians and it didn't work because in 609 BC as the Egyptians were going through Josiah tried to stop him and he was killed in that battle and with his death was the death of the heart and soul of judah for god Um, everything went downhill after that the prophet ezekiel writes after that shortly after josiah was killed other kings came that um, the glory of the Lord departed from Judah. In chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Ezekiel, wish we could do that. That's another time, another another sermon. But in chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this vision of the wheel and the wheel way up in the middle of the air. And he sees this vision of the glory of God that resided there in that holy of holies above the mercy seat between the cherubim. All of a sudden, depart, rise, and head out the door to the holy place. And it continued and began to depart from the holy place outside the temple itself. And chapter 11 of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel sees this this vision, the glory of the Lord, be departing above the temple, and it's leaving. And then above the city, and then it's gone. The glory of God, the presence of God was gone. Nebuchadnezzar, this young, ruthless, rising star of Babylon while his father lay dying and now dead in Babylon, he defeats the armies of Egypt and the Assyrian remnant army, but he's not content to stay in Carchemish. Good King Josiah is dead. Judah is in disrepair. They've turned their heart because it was merely a facade, fake worship of God nebuchadnezzar comes down now into the south he besieges jerusalem and judah he defeats them he subjugates them and he begins to deport people out of jerusalem out of judah back to babylon he takes the the youngest the brightest the nobility of the people of jerusalem and he ships them in captivity off to babylon seven years later he does the same thing he Puts this puppet king uh, there in, in Jerusalem, uh, and they attempt a the little little rebellions. But in 598, he comes again, Nebuchadnezzar, and he takes some more people off, and he he subjugates more people off in a captivity in a deportation. Twelve years goes by. There's one last attempt. Zedekiah was the puppet king that he had set over the house of Judah. But in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar said enough. And he comes with his armies one more time and he lays waste to Jerusalem. He burns the temple, burns everything down, conquers the people and takes them in mass into captivity into Babylon. And Israel as a nation, as a people, Judah is no more. It's over. now God had been speaking of this he'd warned to the prophets before Josiah died even the prophet Habakkuk said this or God spoke to the Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk the prophet he tells Habakkuk look among the nations observe be astonished wonder because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe it if you were told for behold I am raising up the Chaldeans that's the Babylonians that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Habakkuk can hardly believe it. God, you can't do that. We're your people. Yeah, we've made a lot of mistakes, but we're your people. You can't bring the ruthless Babylonians. And God basically says in that little three-chapter book of Habakkuk, watch me. Look, wonder, observe, be astonished. Because I'm going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe it if someone told you. I am going to bring the Babylonians. And then there was the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what was his nickname, remember? He was called the weeping prophet, right? Why was he called the weeping prophet? Because he spoke directly to the Judea people, the Jewish people. And what he had to say would make anybody weep. And Jeremiah comes, in Jeremiah chapter 3, we read this. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what the faithless Israel did, the ten tribes to the north? She went up on every high hill, under every green tree. She was a harlot there. And I thought, well, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. She went and was a hearted also. Because of the lightness of her har- harlotry, she polluted the land, committed adultery, uh, adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. And then Judah relayed this in chapter 20. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. And so I will give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon and will slay them with the sword. Oh, God gave those people plenty of warnings the prophets. When good King Josiah died and the glory of God departs, everything God said would happen, happened. Exactly as God said it. Nebuchadnezzar comes. He besieges. He wrecks havoc. He kills. He destroys. He deports people off into Babylon. And God's people are no more as a nation. What a dark time in the history of Israel. What a horrific scene. We're talking about real people. Real moms and dads, real grandpas and grandmas, and aunts and uncles. People trying to live their life out. And yet, God was just not in the picture. And as hard as Josiah had tried to reform the people, oh, they, they gave lip service, but they were mainly made to do it. And when he dies, their hearts turn back. And the prophets warned them the Babylonians are coming. And now we come full circle. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Verse 2 emphasizes that Nebuchadnezzar plundered the temple of Jehovah. He brought that plunder back into Babylon to the temple of his God. His God was the God called Nebo or Nabu, in fact he was named for it, Nebuchadnezzar, made Nebo protect the crown, Nebuchadnezzar. His dad was also named Nabopolassar. Nebo, the god, was the son of the great um, uh, head of the pantheon, Marduk. He was also called Bel. Nebo, that's my god, said Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes to the temple of the house of Jehovah God. And he plunders it. And he takes the vessels, it says in Daniel 1-2. And he goes and he fills the temple of his God, Nebo. The conqueror, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar. Surely his God now is the greatest for he plundered the house of Jehovah God. And so while Nebuchadnezzar and his God Nebo were swallowing up nation after nation, where was the God of Israel? Where was Yahweh, the God of Israel? It would seem that he had been humiliated by the God Nebo and his servant Nebuchadnezzar. but is that really what was happening? Where was Jehovah God when all of Jerusalem and Judah lay burning? He was right there doing what God does best, sovereignly ruling over the affairs of all the world as the supreme and only God. Notice again back in Daniel Chapter 1, verse 2. In verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord did that. Through the prophet Habakkuk and Jeremiah, I'm going to send the Babylonian army. God was fulfilling His word of judgment. God was in charge. The only sovereign... And the one whose promises are sure, Jehovah God was doing something powerful in the epochs of time, in the great movements of world powers. It was God who had raised up the Assyrians, who took down the ten northern tribes of Israel. God did that. It was God who was raising up nabal this chieftain from this little region of Babylonia. It was God who brought up the Babylonians. And defeated the Egyptians and the Assyrian army at Carchemish. It was God who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The sovereign Lord of all was ruling. And he never had stepped off the throne. But something else was happening in those days of the great movements of world empires and powers. God was doing something else. Jehovah God was was doing something else behind the scenes in the little out-of-the-way place. And while most of the people of, of Judah were giving lip service while Josiah was instituting these reforms, not everyone was giving lip service. There were some people who took it to heart. There was one couple somewhere in Jerusalem. We don't know their names, But they took it to heart. They were following after Jehovah God and they raised a little boy and his name was Daniel. And they named him God is my judge. Daniel was born into that home and somehow in some way he was raised to be faithful and courageous and a a follower of God with passion. But when Nebuchadnezzar came and began to deport those, that first wave of nobility of young men who came from these apparently noble homes, as he began to, to, to deplete uh, Judah of its, of its brain trust and of its key people, that 15-year-old boy, Daniel, was one of those who was deported in 605 B.C., Stripped from his home, stripped from his family who had raised him to be a God-follower and a God-fearer. And Daniel, for the next 70-some years, lived the rest of his life in Babylon. Exactly as God had ordained. For Daniel was God's man in darkness. The darkness of the times and the darkness of, uh, of uh, the the empire of Babylon, Daniel stood out as a shining light. He lived in a world gone mad. A world of sin. But sin never prevents God from raising up his people to do his work in his time. And as we study through the book of Daniel, we'll see as a powerful example to us how God used a a young man and then a middle-aged man and then an elderly man into his 80s to serve him and to be a voice of truth and light and to bring glory to a God who deserved it as the sovereign ruler of all. It would appear in the opening verses of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had won the day, that Nebo, his God, had won the day but hold on to your seats because as we get into the book of Daniel um, God is Jehovah God is going to show up in big time ways and it's a delightful and inspiring and exciting book to get into you know we live in a country that we have been very favored and very fortunate to live in to grow up in imperfect as it is imperfect because it's been led and run by imperfect people but we, I think all of us would agree there's just, there, there's something happening. There's a, there's a, it's like a shroud of darkness that it continues to grow in this country. The Nabopolassers are on the move. The Nebuchadnezzars are rising. Darkness is showing up. The question is, are the Daniels? Are there homes here in this congregation and this community and in this country that are raising up the little boys and the little girls to have a heart for God? Because folks are going to need it. Are there young people today that are taking seriously the call of God? Passionate, not just lip service, it's not, not just going to church and then going off to college or whatever and walking away from him. But but young people who who are who are being built who it's being built into their life a, a, a hunger for God and his glory. Uh, middle-aged people who living as either singles or or married, going about their jobs and with a passion to see God show up at their work. Elderly people in the twilight of the years, having grown and maybe walked with God for decades, now more passionate than ever, more in love and in tune with God in their 80s than they have ever been in their life, and they're passing it on to the next generation, finding the Daniels that this world is desperately going to need. These are serious times involving real people, real nations, real leaders and kings and kingdoms that rise. And may God help us to raise up the next generation like some unnamed family did in the days of King Josiah. And they built into the heart and the life of a little boy named Daniel who God used to change the world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us in Your grace and Your mercy this book preserved in the canon of Scripture. It tells the story of a a real man. He grew up in a real home with a mom and dad who had the courage to build into his life The reality of you, the living God. Who for the 80 some years, 85 plus years of his life, he never departed from. In tune he was with you, the sovereign Lord, whose hand was moving across all of human history in the great epochs of times and the great empires of the world, but also in a a home, in the life of some parents who raised up a boy that you used in a powerful way. And so, Father, transform us and change us and use this study of the book of Daniel to do your work of grace in our lives, I pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.